So we got done with the five tiers, or sorry, the, the five uh, situations regarding leadership in uh, Deuteronomy. It ended up in 18. And something I just want to point out real quick about why this was so uh, concerning, because this was a, a problem that plagued Israel uh, all the rest of their days until it seems like the exile, and then maybe they started to kind of get the hint afterwards. Um, but notice in verse 20 of chapter 18, it says, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. The problem is always other gods. And so I want to I share with you something real quick. We got to talking about some of this stuff in our Ephesians. Uh, when we were looking at Ephesians on Wednesday night, I want to share it with you. If you're ever interested in looking at an easy to read but scholarly, well-read insight into this idea of the other gods and those types of things, there's a guy named Michael Heiser, H-E-I-S-E-R, that wrote a book called The Unseen Realm, and it is the perfect introductory study. It's a great book to read. You can get it on audiobook, or you can just get him on YouTube and like read through some of his, or watch some of his lectures and things that he's given on there. I think he has a podcast going on. He has some fascinating insights as an Old Testament scholar. And uh, he, he brings a lot of things to the table that many other people don't want to uh, address. Uh, he doesn't have a, 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 an understanding that he needs to protect the biblical text from scrutiny or anything like that. He's pretty much, if you just let the Bible stand on its own and take it for what it says, you'll actually have a more... Uh, clarity in the situation. So his book, The Unseen Realm, is very helpful in order to help see uh, a lot of things that, that a lot of scholars and commentaries just don't want to talk about or that don't talk about. Uh, it's been a very helpful uh, study tool for me. Uh, chapter 19, verse 1. And we'll read through this quickly uh, so that we'll pick up where we were last time. When Yahweh your Elohim cuts off the nations whose land Yahweh your Elohim gives you, and you dispossess them and settle in their cities and in their houses, and you shall set aside three cities for yourself in the midst of your land which Yahweh your Elohim gives you to possess. You shall prepare the roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land which Yahweh your Elohim will give you as a possession so that any manslayer may flee there. Now, this is the cause, sorry, this is the case of the manslayer who will flee there and live when he kills his friend unintentionally, not hating him previously. As when a man goes into a forest with his friend to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree and the iron head slips off the handle and strikes his friend so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue the manslayer in the heat of his anger and overtake him because the way is long and takes his life, though he was not deserving of death since he had not hated him previously. And notice, it's the idea of emotion getting the better of somebody in a situation, and, and probably especially in the situation of the death of a loved one. I think we're pretty sympathetic to being able to understand and, and sympathize with that. Verse 7, Therefore, I command you, saying, You shall set aside these three cities for yourself. If the Lord your God, if Yahweh your Elohim, enlarges your territory, just as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land which he promised to give to your fathers. Now stop for just a second, because there's something we need to think about with this verse. Number one, this is not the prayer of Jabez. I think that's important, okay? So get that out of your, out of your mind if that happened to pop up there. Notice that the verse starts with what word? F. F. 
Which means what? There's two things that that could possibly mean in the text. It could be conditional. Okay, it could be conditional. So there's a contingency involved. Or, do we know the other one? Since. It could be translated as since if it's verifying a truth. Okay? Here, it's conditional. If you notice, whenever we read through the Romans passage, there were some in there where instead of doing if, I, I said since. Why? Because it's not if the Spirit of God dwells in me. That might be the way they translate it, but they don't mean it in that way like, well, maybe, maybe not. They mean since the Spirit of God dwells in you, here's all the benefits that come from that indwelling power. So, in here, in this situation, we understand that this is something that Yahweh may do and he may not do. Now, this is a problem a little bit unless we think through it. If Yahweh your Elohim enlarges your territory just as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land which he promised to give to your fathers. Now stop. So are we to say that God won't enlarge their territory to fulfill the promise of all the land that he promised to their fathers? Why do they have a contingency there? I mean, if it's a promise of God, it's going to happen, right? It's sure it won't fail. So why does he use the word if? It's not because it should mean since. It's not what he's talking about there. Why would it be if? Well, number one, what is the land allotted to the fathers? we got this handy-dandy sweet map here. Put this up here. And we understand it largely is the land of Canaan. Okay? So remember, the Israelites coming out of Egypt come around here. They receive the law. They have the opportunity to go into the promised land, but they spoil it by not trusting God. Instead, they cower to fear, and they end up wandering until everyone who was 20 or over dies because of their unbelief, and the next generation takes up. And then they come up into this point right here, and we saw at the beginning of Deuteronomy that they had already experienced a conquest in this section, and it actually stretches all the way up into this area up in here, because this is Bashan, where, where King Og controlled all this area right here before the Jordan River. So the main part that he's talking about of what would be controlled or what would be the inherited land is going to be everything that stretches down in between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, all of this situation right here. And of course, later on in New Testament times, we know that is Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. Okay? So we, we, we get that understanding of it. So now, here's the question. If Yahweh your Elohim enlarges your territory just as he has sworn to your fathers. What is that real quick? What is the swearing to the fathers of the territory? Do we know? Covenant. I'm sorry, come on. Promise. This is what happens when It's a promise. Married. Where is it found? Do we know? Well, that be the Abrahamic. It's the Abrahamic covenant. Let's go there just real quick, okay? Let's go there real quick. Genesis chapter 12. And actually, it's probably better understood, or at least the, the details of, of the geography are given in Genesis 15 as well. So we'll look at both of them just briefly. It never hurts to go over the covenants that God has made with Israel because the covenants that God makes with Israel shows two things. Number one, the church is not Israel. And number two, God still has a plan for Israel, even though they seem largely in apostasy or unbelief right now. There's still a future hope for them. Genesis what? Genesis 12. We're just going to look at 1 through 3. It says, Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land. Now mark that. The land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. Land 
is seen there. I will make you a great nation. Seed or descendants is seen there. And I will bless you. Blessing is seen there. Okay? Notice the next part. And I will make your name great, that Abram will have renown in some way. And so you shall be a blessing. Or in other words, you are going to be a blessing to the other nations around you, but they are not you. You will be unique and different. Verse 3, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, uh, in use, forgive me, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So notice that the blessing idea is not just for Israel to be a blessing to other nations, but all nations will be blessed through Israel in a different way. Everybody see those? So this is the basic constructs of the covenant. Now, if you turn over to Genesis 15, and you look what's going on there, we're just going to look at the end. I encourage you sometime, if you're not familiar with Genesis 15, read it. It really is a good thing. If, if, you, if you haven't spent any time studying it, it will really provoke a lot of questions and creates for good discussion to better understand how God works with the nation of Israel. But in Genesis 15, if you would look verse 18, it says, On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this, what? Land, there it is, and he's going to express it here. From the river of Egypt, what's the river in Egypt? The Nile. The Nile, notice this. As far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Anybody know where the Euphrates is? Iraq. Woo, it's like even on further. Iraq. What's that? Iraq. Iraq. In fact, it runs down into the Persian Gulf is what it is. So we're talking about an even greater expanse of land than that. Notice that the conquest of where they're coming up is right here, and they're going to they're going to have a conquest from Jordan to the Mediterranean. So when we talk about this idea that we're looking at in Deuteronomy 19, we're talking about the idea of enlarging to give you the full expanse of everything that's going on. They're just concerned with conquering Canaan, 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 Canaan. That's what we hear about all the time now. Canaan right now for, for the Deuteronomy part. But he's talking about branching out in order to fulfill the promise entirely. Okay, so this gives us some idea here. And look what he says here. The great river Euphrates, verse 19. The people groups, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim, which were giants at that time, and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. So he names them off so that there is no confusion. This is the land that I'm going to give you. Now, the reason why it's important for you to know that at least and so when you read through the rest of the Old Testament and you find these names crop up, you know exactly where they came from and they're in that they occupied territories that were to be conquered because of their severe disobedience and that Israel was serving as essentially the, the, the stick that was whipping them and disciplining them for their rampant sin. So knowing those two things and that God lines it out just fine, look back at chapter 19, verse 8 of Deuteronomy. Forgive me. If Yahweh, your Elohim, enlarges your territory, just as he has sworn to your fathers. So we saw that, right? The covenant, the contract that's made. And gives you all the land which he promised to give your fathers. Now here's the question. God promised it. Our main concern in Deuteronomy is going to be this section right here. But we know it stretches across to the Euphrates River. Why not just... God be like, you know what? I always tell the truth. Here it is. Here's all the land. What's going on there? Do we know? Do we know about what were the problems that Israel had in their history about why they didn't occupy all the land? Because they weren't trusting God. They weren't trusting God to fight the battle for them, and then they decided that they wanted to put 
a human king over themselves instead of trusting God to be their king. Okay, so that was part of the problems that came out of that, but there's something that stems before that. Didn't they make a promise to somebody? Yes. It's the section we looked at in Joshua, chapter 9, I believe it is, where God tells them, don't make a covenant with anybody there. Because back then, when you gave your word, you actually had to keep it. <laughs> very different. I mean, Novel very, idea. very foreign, you know. But when they did that, they made that mistake. And the text is very, very certain in it. And they did not seek the Lord's face on this. They decided they were going to branch out in their own without consulting God's guidance or his truth or his word, however you want to say that. They were not conferring with him in order to move forward. And that cost them the opportunity. Now, here's what else this does. Whenever Israel would be disciplined, how were they disciplined? Do we know? With another nation coming in and whooping them. Okay, coming in and whooping them. And not only that, when you whooped a nation, what'd you do? Rule over it. You what? You ruled over, over it. it. Yeah, but there's something else. Enslave the people? You enslave the people. You carry them away. Remember about Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon? And the northern kingdom, the Assyrians came in and took off the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. They were exiled out of the land. That was God's disciplinary tool. Not only will I raise up a nation to spank you when you disobey me, and God's very patient in the disobedience that takes place, but they will also take you and they will remove you out of the land and you will not enjoy the blessing that is in the land. The land is better than your behavior. I will not let you spoil it. That's pretty interesting. All this centered around real estate. Good grief. You know, but it's pretty profound. Why is it that God has not chosen to give all of the land to them yet? Because is the promise certain and sure and will it be fulfilled? Absolutely, yes, it will. But he also understands that there has got to be room for discipline for these people because they have a wayward heart that becomes obstinate, hard-hearted, and they don't want to listen to God. And that's part of the discipline that he gives. Now, why is this so important to understand? When we see in Revelation 19, when Jesus returns to the earth, when he returns to the earth, he does something pretty profound. And and let's explain how this works here, okay? We saw three things that were involved in the blessing to Abraham. Land, seed, and blessing. Has Abraham's seed multiplied? Good grief, okay? We got Ishmael, we got Isaac. And then we have him getting with Keturah, and they had six kids, of which more Gentile nations came out of. Only Isaac was the Israel nation, the Jewish nation. But all the rest of them were Gentiles that came out of Abraham. In fact, at the beginning of Deuteronomy, I don't know if you'll remember this, but Moses even said when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they were on their way, he said, this day you have become as many as the sands on the shores, as many as the stars in the sky. What was the initial promise that was given to Abraham? Your descendants will be as many as the sands on the shore and the stars in the sky. That promise has already been fulfilled. We see that through you, the whole nations will be blessed. We understand that as being the coming of the Messiah through Jewish descent, being descended from Abraham, being descended from David, and providing salvation for the world. Guess what? That promise has been fulfilled. Does Israel occupy all the land? No. No. See, this is what makes all this talk about you know, a two-state solution, the Palestinian state, Hamas, these types of things. That's what makes all that crazy. In fact, there was a news report that came out on the 7th that I received uh, on my phone through email about the idea of a lot of the Muslims there at the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem are scared because there's more increased talk going on about demolishing the Dome of the Rock and erecting a temple that was replicating that of Solomon's. And they're freaked out about it. Now, not only that, And I probably told some of you this before, but about, I don't know, eight years ago, 
I had the opportunity to meet a missionary who lived over in Jerusalem, and all he did was evangelize Muslims. I mean, you talk about a very different realm, man. I, I'm not called to that. Definitely not, you know. But but for him, it was like, you know, he loved it. It was his thing. But what was crazy about that is I started asking him questions about, is there any murmurings about the temple? And he told me that they actually have basic structure set aside so that when somebody just gives the, the gives the call, flips the switch, hits the button, whatever it is, they can actually have a basic structure of a temple erected and start offering sacrifices again in three days. That's how quickly they can get that done. They'll fill all the rest of it out later. But the thing for them is worshiping through sacrifice at that time. So we talk about how interesting that is and the tension over there and the end times and what we understand about God's future for Israel. Man, it all starts to play on this whole idea of land and the discipline that they're under right now for the land. Israel is gathered back in the land, but they're gathered in unbelief. And so this idea here of still having some discipline that needs to happen with them, God has no problem doing that. That doesn't mean he failed in his promise. It means that he's going to have to fulfill it at a later time with his people. But right now, because they're obstinate, he's not going to let that go. He's not going to excuse disobedience in that way. So, thinking about all that, real quick, are there any questions about that? I know that's a lot of heavy stuff to like throw at one time against the wall and hope it sticks. But any, any thoughts or questions about any of that? If you ever want something really interesting to look at, the Temple Institute, you can Google it. The Temple Institute. Uh, in August, we're going to have a prophecy conference here, and I'm very excited because of the people we have. Uh, Dr. Mike Stollard, who is on staff with the Friends of Israel, uh, Israel My Glory magazine, those types of things, he's going to be here to speak. Dr. Paul Benware, that's been speaking on the end times and doing things for years and years and years. Uh, and another guy who was actually one of my virtual professors, uh, Dr. Randall Price. And Dr. Randall Price is an archaeologist. He's done, you know, 115 excavations over and trips to Israel and all these things like that. He knows tons of stuff about the temple and the rebuilding and the tensions over there and Middle East policies and, and, and just incredible stuff. So I'm very excited about how informative that's going to be. That's going to be one of those where you will feel your brain oozing out of your ears by the time the weekend's over. So it should be fun. Anyway, uh, so go on to verse 9. Chapter 19, verse 9. If you carefully observe all this commandment which I command you today, to love Yahweh your Elohim and to walk in his ways always, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three. That is the condition. If God decides that he is going to enlarge the land of Israel so that they fill the whole thing, not only are they going to have those first three cities of refuge for manslaughter cases and that type so they can still live and thrive and have a life, but when you expand out, then you will have the opportunity to build three more cities. How will we know? Three more cities be built. Verse 10, so innocent blood will not be shed in the midst of your land, which Yahweh your Elohim gives you as an inheritance, and blood guiltiness be on you. Verse 11, now watch this. This is interesting because it changes, okay? Uh, let me see here. Well, real quick, let's talk about this real quick. Um, the conquest to come in and take all the land. The conquest to come in and take the land, I, I marked down two things that were coming on in the study. Number one, disobedience could still be punished. We talked about that. But number two, we have to remember that the occupation of the land had to be gradual. It had to be a gradual occupation. Let me read for you real quick just from chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. If you want to write there, 722, something like that, it tells you. Uh, but, but Moses tells them something very interesting about how they're going to occupy the land. He says, Yahweh your Elohim will clear away these nations before you little by little. You will not be able to put an end to them quickly, for the wild beasts would grow too numerous for you. So notice, it's going to be a conquest of 
gradual time, a process, city by city. Why is that? Because if not, I don't know, all, all the crazy animals of the desert in the Middle East, they are going to grow up to such a point to where you won't be able to overcome them. So it's very interesting to think how methodical that God has formulated this process to be followed as long as they would just trust him with it. He's going to execute it perfectly. I just thought that was really cool. So verse 11. Now, we saw about the manslayer and what constitutes a manslayer. You don't have a previous hate in your heart for someone. You, they end up dying by your hand by a complete accident of something going on. Notice that God allows for those things and he understands it. But now we got a different situation and that is premeditated murder. Verse 11. But if there's a man who hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, and rises up against him and strikes him so that he dies. Now stop. Everybody think of Cain at that moment? Mm -hmm. Everybody remember the situation with Cain. This is so important to understand the compassion of God toward people. God reasoned with Cain about that situation. He told him, sin is lying at the door. It's waiting for you, and you must overcome it. Why are you sad? It's your own fault. Deal with it on your own. I mean, it's just incredible how he pleads like a father with his son to not make a terrible decision. And it says here, he strikes him so that he dies. And so he flees to one of these cities. He hated him. He waited for him. He hit him. He killed him. And now I'm going to go to the city and I'm going to live the rest of my life. and It's going to be just great. No problem. No. Verse 12. Then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. Now that's just justice. That's what it is in that situation. Verse 13, you shall not pity him, but you shall purge the blood of the innocent from Israel that it may go well with you. In other words, if you don't fulfill the justice side of the situation, you will be guilty of the blood that he killed. It's not just him. And now falls upon you for not doing the right thing and setting things right. And so God gives them a way to do that. Any question? What's that? They didn't have uh, any kind of jail system or anything no. else like that. It was, no. You did it, you're dead. Yes. It was usually repayment for uh, wrong action. Or it was your life is how they dealt with it. And that's where we get into those holes. You know, if somebody does this and this and this, they're to be put to death. They do this, they're to be put to death. You're, you're to expurge them from you. Uh, they're to be cut off. Oftentimes in the Bible, in fact, I think almost every time in the Old Testament, the idea of that person is to be cut off from Israel, that means put to death is what it means. They were very severe about that. Now, we might sit here and look at that and go, good grief, that's crazy. But I can't help but to think, would we have as much problems as we have now if the situation was so severe? I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of people, there's a, a big push for Muslims to enact Sharia law with people. But I'll tell you one thing they have that's very interesting. If you're caught stealing, they cut off your hand. Think about that. It's not only that you're not going to want to steal again or, or be able to resist that urgent temptation, you're not going to have the tools to be able to steal as much as you thought you could before. You can't just nub your way around, you know, and getting that up on there. And I'm trying to say it sound desecrating or whatever or like that, but I mean, think about it. That's pretty serious. You're well, you know, marked for that's, life. That's a what's point. that? You're also marked for life. You're also marked for life. That's true. So do, do your right hand and you're taught to use your personal hygiene with your left hand. So that's yeah. kind of, if you shake hands with, uh, no thanks, you know, so. Mm -hmm. There you go. Now here's one thing that it would cure that is an epidemic problem in society all over the world uh, that we don't have laws against really. And that's the problem of fornication. I mean, we don't talk enough about how, how 
you know, sexual acts that are outside of the bonds of marriage are so detrimental to a society. And from that, we've had the increase of STDs. We've had unwanted pregnancies. We've had pornography addiction. Uh, we've had just insane things happen from all that stuff. And it's because no one dares legislate or mandate against it. And yet God does in his law. You know, if you find a man lying with a woman that's not his wife, you bring him out in front of everybody and you kill them both. You stone them to death. Why is that? Well, number one, they violated the marriage covenant that God set up before the fall ever was instituted. Number two, it sends a message to everybody else. This is wrong. And our society refuses to say that perverted sex acts are wrong. And, and, and we, we're suffering from it. The, the big problem that's kind of underlying, you know, the day in, day out living with everyone is all this discussion that's going on behind the scenes about child pornography right now. And man, it runs deep with people. It's insane. It's sick. And so the church really has a responsibility here to be drawing a line in the sand and saying, no, you know, God has a perfect and beautiful design for sex. You guys have messed it up and here are the consequences that you're suffering from that. It really has served to corrode the society. So that's, that's a very important thing that we might want to think, you know what, that's something that should be addressed. Verse 14, you shall not move your neighbor's boundary marks. Uh-oh. You don't own that much. You own this much. Can you imagine going out and picking up your neighbor's steak and just going, Doop. We've had that happen. Yeah, and you have to have a surveyor come out, don't you? Well, even after they did, they, they figured they shot their thing out there to know the line, so they moved cameras on our property. To, yeah? Yeah. It's all hunting stuff, right? <laughs> did Chuck go out there and just take some snippers and snip No, but we were walking one time, all of a sudden, here's this camera, and I went, that's not a deer right I'm sure that was a fun time to have that conversation God is serious about real estate he's serious about private ownership in the Old Testament that's very interesting you shall not move your neighbor's boundary mark which the ancestors have set in your inheritance which you will inherit in the land that Yahweh your Elohim gives you to possess all of it's a gift anyway right no Israelite deserves this, but he's going to lavish an inheritance upon them and give them a property to call their own. So don't do something goofy and take your little stake and move it over to try to get more. That's silly. So moving on here. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence or two of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Now, you might be familiar with this, but this is what we looked at in chapter 17, verses 6 and 7. Let's glance back at it just real quick. Chapter 17, verses 6 and 7, so we see it. The, the prominence of two witnesses throughout the scripture is very important, especially when we see things in the New Testament. I swear by heaven and earth, those types of things. Those are the two witnesses involved in that situation. Uh, chapter 17, verse 6, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. You shall purge the evil from your midst. So not only was it that you had a testifying of wrongdoing, but it was also that you were the first action in execution. This stuff was taken very seriously back then. So you got one accusation from one person, it's not even to be entertained. There's no way to solve justice there. You got two or three people that have seen something wrong that has happened. Now it's time to take action and to take swift action. 
to deal with it right then and there. So it says here, verse 16, if a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before Yahweh, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. Now here's why that's interesting, because when you're standing before God, Number one, your conscience is automatically in play. And your conscience will let you know you're wrong. Why is it that some people who commit murder or something like that, why do they take them into interrogation rooms and do the good cop, bad cop thing and all that stuff? It wouldn't, it wouldn't be effective whatsoever if people didn't have a conscience that they know will eventually get the better of them. And this is why when you've got people that have pushed themselves to a point of having a seared conscience that has no remorse for anything that they've done wrong, that, then you start to get into a scary territory. Because then you've got somebody who is just a sociopath. You know, there's no reasoning with them whatsoever. There's no rehabilitating them. There's no remorse. There's no, I'm sorry. And, and, and it just seems futile. But notice in this situation, when they stand before the Lord, the conscience is in play, but also before the priests and the judges. Now, this is everything we dealt with when we talked about the chiasm of leadership before. Uh, it was between chapter 16, verse 18, and chapter 18, verse 22, the A and A apostrophe and B and B apostrophe sections. It doesn't deal with the idea of the king, but the priests and the judges standing uh, as far as the moral, I don't know what you want to call it, deciders of these type of situations. Well, they were representatives of Yahweh before them. It says here, verse 18, the judges shall investigate thoroughly. Now remember, the problem is you've got a malicious witness that's come against somebody, a false accusation that's been made. And notice that it doesn't say malicious witnesses. If, so, if something that is true that has happened, you've got one witness that's dealt with it, you don't even entertain it unless the accusation is malicious. Unless it's something that is unfounded and untrue, then it's brought before the judges and the priests and they investigate the situation. And look what happens. And if the witness is a false witness and he's accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. That's a good uh, phrase again. I've marked some of these in green where I've seen that you shall purge the evil from your midst is the idea. What was that person trying to get out of bringing the false accusation? Somebody else dead. Somebody else dead. Maybe they were trying to get money out of them. Maybe when we think about today, you're ruining a reputation or whatever that is. Well, imagine if you're found to be false in this situation, all of it turns around and it's heaped on you. All of it's taken from you. You know, well, this person deserves to die for what they did and, and it didn't really happen. That person's that person dies. You know what that does? It keeps people from making false accusations. Mm -hmm. It's a checks and balance system that's severe. Yes, it's severe. Political party that way. You could do all of it that way. Absolutely. An entire, an entire political party could be gone that way. Absolutely. <laughs> ah, Dave. Okay, moving on. Verse 20. The rest, now watch what this does. The rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Notice that justice serves as an example to everybody else, but. We've got this really crazy thought here. And will never again do such an evil thing among you? Stop for a second. You mean that's the only time that a malicious witness is going to come forward and make a false accusation against somebody? only takes one example sometimes. Okay. So let me ask you a question. Do you think this happened more throughout the nation of Israel's history? 
See, without even knowing specific examples in our Bibles, we're like, you know what experience tells me yeah, it did. How did it get that way? How do you perpetuate sin in a society? You let somebody get away with it? Notice that. Because you don't deal with it severely is the way it happens. Now, I will go ahead and freely confess I'm the worst parent in this room. Okay? But here's one thing... But here's one thing that we all know and can agree on. Let's be honest. If you give your word that a consequence is going to happen for a wrong action, and you let them know up front, and you don't follow through with it, that child knows, I have one, and they're full of it. And they will remember it forever. And they'll remember it forever. (laughs) What if God had done that, you know? Adam, I'm giving to you all this land. You can eat of any tree that you want to, but if this tree don't eat for the day that you do it, you'll surely die. Well, what have you guys done? You've eaten. Well, you know what? I really love you, so I'm not going to to do that. Is that how God should have handled that situation? God should have been a better parent in that situation. Yeah, but you see what I'm saying. Think about the ramifications that we'll now imagine on a full society level here. Here is the issue when a false witness comes and makes an accusation. And, and think about what accusations do. I was just talking to somebody the other day uh, who had, a, who had a, a family member who brought accusations against another family member about uh, uh, sexual abuse. And it's totally found out to not be true at all. None of it was true. In fact, whenever caseworkers got involved, when police got involved and they started doing the investigating thoroughly of all of it, they said, I don't even know why you're here. This doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and what ended up happening later? The person withdrew their accusations, withdrew their charges they wanted to file. But it doesn't change the impact. It doesn't change the tarnishing of the reputation. That person had to upsell everything they had and move to a different Mm -hmm. community because of all the bad things that had come against them for that. And they were innocent. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Man. Now, what should have happened to that person for it? Well, they would have been living in the nation of Israel. They would have lost everything. Their reputation would have been tarnished. That's severe. So notice, you deal with it exactly. You deal with it up front. It's interesting. The legal system here with judges and things, it wasn't, you know, and we're going to set a court date for 2025 to deal with this terrible thing. They didn't do that. They dealt with it quickly. They did their work. They were consumed with it. They got it done. So, everybody will be afraid they will never again do that evil thing among you it's a failure to enforce that allows for bad behavior to persist verse 21 thus you shall not show pity life for life eye for eye tooth for tooth hand for hand foot for foot let's see what we got here for a breaking point because this is a lot um Let's stop here. And the reason why we're going to stop here is because chapter 20 starts dealing with warfare with surrounding nations. So, and the big contrast that we're going to see is, if you remember, we talked about the Hebrew word harem, and that means to absolutely, thoroughly, and utterly destroy and wipe out all inhabitants of this land right here. But when they get into situations where they're dealing with other nations and other cities that surround that land, there's actually a completely different protocol for warfare uh, that's brought to play. And so it's something that we'll take next week and we'll just spend total uh, attention on that. I don't want to switch topics too quickly. So, But here's what we do see if we walk away from this. God's justice is perfect. God's just, justice is right. 
Uh, and again, I know we talk about how, well, we're in an age of grace. We're not in an age of law. We're not Israel. We're the church. Yes, we understand that. But it, that in no way tarnishes or corrupts the character of God. And in no time does grace ever allow for us to say that sin is okay or that sin shouldn't be dealt with. It's by the church not dealing with sin that often allows for sin to, to spread infectiously. So uh, let's pray. God, I thank you for our time together in the Word. I thank you, God, for Deuteronomy 19. I thank you for the, uh, the guidelines that you've given to that nation of how to live and how to deal with sin in, in such an exact and precise and swift manner, uh, giving it what it deserves. And oftentimes that is someone's life. We thank you, God, that Jesus has given his life for our sin. And not just for one sin, but for all sins. Um, it's truly uh, amazing and gracious beyond understanding. And I pray that that propel us to want to live humbly and faithfully for you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.